Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would be turning your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 9. And while you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's ministry. And so if you're participating in that this morning, you can make your way there to the children's classroom in the back room there in the corner, and the leaders will meet you there. Um, Again, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. We'll be looking at uh, verses 15 through 22. Um, I'll read that whole section for us here in a moment. We will mainly be focusing on verses 15 through 17. I just want to say that up front so that when we are 30 minutes into the sermon and we haven't touched the second half of the passage, you don't start sweating and worrying if we're ever going to get out of here. So uh, we'll be looking at 15 through 22, reading the whole passage. We're really diving in uh, there to uh, 15 through 17. So let me read our passage for us and then we will pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law... Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Father, what a a privilege it is to be able to gather together as your people this week. I know we say that almost every week, but we never want to forget that it is indeed a blessing from you to be able to come together as your people, to come together and to be refreshed under the truth of your word, to be convicted under the truth of your word, to to be reminded of the glorious truth of the gospel, even as we just recited the gospel together in song through it as well. What, what, What a blessing that is to sing that to one another, to be reminded of all that you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. And Father, we are indeed thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place even right now, this very moment, that we, we come into this room not as a group of people who have, who have arrived in our own strength, but as a, a group of people who are in desperate need of grace and mercy that has been showered on us and poured out on us by the work of Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. 
And so, Father, I pray that this passage this morning will just continue to allow us to to marinate in the good news of the gospel, to be in all of what Christ has accomplished for us. Father, give us the minds, the the supernatural, spirit-filled minds to, to grasp what it is that you have to say to us this morning through the truth of your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide my words and that as I preach, that you would use the proclamation of the truth of your word to change all of us, my own heart included, and shape all of us more and more to the likeness of Christ for our good and for the glory of his name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, it it has been, and I know we're only in chapter 9, we still have a few chapters to go, but it's been such a privilege to move through the book of Hebrews with you over these past months, just to continually, week after week, reflect on the glories of who Christ is. And, And I'm just so thankful that the gospel is a well of good news that never runs dry right? It doesn't matter how many weeks we talk about it, how much work we do to try to understand it. There's always more to be found out, more to be amazed by, more to reflect on. And and every week we can gather as God's people and and every week we can look at God's word and, and every week we can be overwhelmed by his grace to us and his kindness to us that he has shown us in the gospel. You know, I said this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating that the gospel really is like a diamond that we can just keep turning and looking at the beauty that's found in every facet. There's so many different angles that we can look at the gospel and see what it is that Christ has done and what he is doing and what it is that he has accomplished for us. In fact, I think we often oversimplify the gospel. Now, I want to be careful here because at one level, the gospel is simple And in fact, I would argue we could be unfaithful by making it seem more complicated than it actually is. I mean, in fact, we just presented new members this morning. And as part of our membership process, when when the elders meet with the couple, we we just want to be sure that they understand the gospel. So we ask for a can you just give us a brief, less than a minute, simple explanation of what the gospel is, right? We, we want it to be simple in that sense, right? We just want the, the basics to be there, that we understand the the sin of humanity against God that deserves condemnation, that Christ died for the sake of those sins and through faith alone and Christ alone, we are able to be saved from eternal condemnation and are given eternal life, right? That's, that's the simple good news of the gospel right there in just basically one sentence. And so, so yes, we, we can uh, present the gospel simply and ought to present it simply. But yet at the very same time, at the very same time, we should spend a lifetime learning more and more about what exactly it is that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. It truly is a well that never runs dry. For example, not, not the least of which, here's just one example, the fact that Christ said this in Matthew 20, 28. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ran- and to give my life as a ransom for many. Right? If you just think about that from Matthew 20, 28, right? Hebrews in these first nine chapters, especially the first few chapters, has 
unfolded for us, right? The glories of Jesus Christ, chapter after chapter, this glorious, majestic, supreme Christ, right? For whom and through whom all things were created, who holds the universe together by the word of his power. And yet he says, I came not to be served, but to serve you. Right? The depths of that truth, we will never finish plunging. Therefore, my prayer is that this passage will, will deepen our understanding of what it means for Christ to come to serve us. That he came not to be served, but to serve. And the more we deepen our understanding of that, we will, we will see more of the fullness of what it is exactly that Christ has accomplished for us. And therefore, I pray that our worship of him this morning will increase and our affections for Jesus Christ will be stirred up this morning so that we will make much of the glory of his name through what we reflect on this morning. And look, I know that so much of Hebrews has been heavily on the theology of Christ and, and who he is and and there are going to be times when we go through books of the Bible. And in fact, in a few chapters, we're going to get there in Hebrews, right? There's going to be books of the Bible that are full of commands and instructions about what we need to do and how we need to love our neighbor and how we need to free ourselves from worry and hold each other accountable and give sacrificially and forgive others uh, uh, radically and, and bear with one another and submit to those in authority and how we're to pray for people and on and on and on. But there are other times where a passage is full of the glory of Christ and we're meant to be changed by simply gazing at Jesus. We're meant to be changed and, and moved toward obedience and likeness to Christ simply by looking to Christ, seeing his overwhelming grace and mercy toward us in the gospel. And as we do that, you will be changed. You will be changed over time as we look to Jesus. So let's, let's together this morning fix our, our gaze on Christ this morning. And I want us to see together that he has guaranteed our eternal inheritance. Christ has guaranteed our eternal inheritance. So here's the key question that this text answers for us this morning. How does that happen? How does Christ guarantee our eternal inheritance? What, does he, what is he doing? What has he done in order to guarantee our, internal, our eternal inheritance? And here's three answers to that question that this text gives us. Number one, Christ is our mediator. Christ is our mediator. Number two, Christ died to redeem us. And number three, Christ died to enrich us. He's our mediator, he died to redeem us, and he died to enrich us. So let's look at the first way that he guarantees our eternal inheritance. Number one, Christ is our mediator. Look there again with me at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, of course, that comes on the hills of what we looked at last week, verses 11 through 14, where we saw that 
the work of Christ occurred in a better place, right? In the, the, the temple, the tent, the tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation, that his work took, occurred in a better place, that he himself was a better sacrifice once for all, and he is a better redemption, right? A, an eternal redemption. And, and therefore, therefore, because of that, verse 15 says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, what does it mean to be a mediator? So when it describes Jesus this way, what is it talking about? Well, just in basic, ordinary, everyday usage, the way we use the word, the way the English dictionary would define the word is that a mediator is, is, is a go-between. A mediator is someone who, who works to carry out the details of a covenant that's made between two people. The, 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 the formal English definition of the word mediator is a person who attempts to make people involved in a conflict come to an agreement. A go between two parties who need to come to an agreement. Now, of course, that's an imperfect theological definition, right? Because Jesus is not having to convince the Father to love us, right? No, no, the, the issue is on, on our side of things, right? It's, it's on us as rebels and sinners and, and those of wicked hearts who continually try to break the covenant and run from it. But here it says that Christ is the mediator working on our behalf to be sure that we remain in the new covenant so that we can receive the promises that have been made inside this covenant, right? So just look at verse 15. Why is he the mediator of a new covenant. What was the purpose of his ministry as a mediator of the covenant? Well, what does it say? Verse 15, so that, right? It's giving us the purpose so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's why he's mediating on our behalf. That's why he is at work in the midst of the new covenant to ensure that those who are called will receive the promised eternal inheritance. So let's look at that phrase, just one, or that, that sentence, just one phrase at a time. So who is he doing this for? He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive this promised eternal inheritance. He is doing this for those who are called. And this is really important because we, we want to make clear that Christ will not fail in his task as mediator. He will not fail in his task as mediator. He, will, he, he guarantees that those for whom he mediates are those who are called and they will receive the promised eternal inheritance. It is a guaranteed outcome. In other words, this is not a ministry that Christ does for every human being on planet earth, for every human being who has ever existed. No, it is a particular ministry for his people, namely those who are called. Otherwise, we have to say that sometimes Jesus' mediation fails. And the mediation, the ministry as mediator of Christ, does not and cannot fail. It is for those who are called. It has guaranteed results. So 
So what do we know about those who are called? Well, let's look at two key passages. We could look at a few different ones, but let's just look at two key passages. First is John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I'm going to I'll read bits and pieces of John 10, verses 3 and 4, and then 25 to 30. The sheep hear his voice. So this is Jesus speaking, giving an analogy, a parable, talking about the shepherd. And Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And then skipping down to verse 25 of John 10, Jesus says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Those whom the Son calls know him. They know his voice and they follow him and no one can take them from the good shepherd, right? From the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. No one can snatch them out of his hand. That's what Jesus says to us in John 10. And then more specifically, we have Romans 8, 28 through 30 that mentions the call there as well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what I want you to see in Romans 8, 28 through 30 is this unbroken, unbroken, unbreakable chain of God's providence and faithfulness over the lives of those who are called, right? That's what Romans 8 says to us. Romans 8, 30 says, those whom he has called, he will justify, right? There's nobody who drops off. There's no filter where some get caught here and don't make it to the next level. No, everyone he calls will be justified, and everyone who is justified will be glorified. If you're called, you make it to the end, right? You make it to glory. That's the unbreakable chain of Romans 8, 28 through 30. All those whom are called are justified. All those whom are justified will be glorified. So when verse 15 says he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, it means those whom Jesus has called to himself, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ by the call of God on their lives, by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And it says that he is at work on behalf of them, mediating to be sure that they will receive the eternal inheritance that has been promised to them. Now, the only way we're going to truly appreciate 
what Jesus does as our mediator is if we fully understand this eternal inheritance. What is this eternal inheritance? Well, it, the New Testament talks about it in a lot of different places. But let's look at just two or three this morning. First, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now what the ESV renders as heritage, many translations render as inheritance. It's the same meaning. There in Revelation 21.7, the one who conquers will have this inheritance and I will be his God and he will be my son. So what is the inheritance? It's everything. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's the new Jerusalem coming down as dwelling with God for all eternity. It's no more tears, no more pain, no more crying, no more mourning. It's God making all things new and we get it all. That's our eternal inheritance. Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And now listen to this. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. When you come to Christ, you are adopted as a child of God. And if you are a child of God, then you are an heir of God. And if you are an heir of God, Romans 8 says to us that we are fellow heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. I've said this probably 20 times in the life of our church, but I'll say it again. That is an unbelievable, borderline, blasphemous statement if it wasn't in the Bible. That you and I would share in Christ's inheritance. 
that we are co-heirs, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ himself. And then finally, another passage that I'll often point us to, but I can't resist doing it again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the dead, of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is what 1 Peter chapter 1 says about this eternal inheritance that is waiting for us. It is imperishable. It's imperishable. It's eternal. It will never come to an end. There is nothing that can ever bring it to an end. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. There is no darkness in it. There is no mar upon it. It is a perfect, glorious inheritance. And it will always be for all eternity. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 1 says that this inheritance is unfading. That's the word that captures my heart. Every good thing on planet earth fades away. Right? Every possession we have that's precious breaks down and fades away. Right? Of the seven wonders of the world, original ones anyway, there's one left standing. And if Jesus Christ waits long enough, it will eventually be worn down to nothing as well. But there is one inheritance that will shine just as brightly a trillion years from now as it shines today. And it is the unfading inheritance we have in Jesus Christ. That our joy in Jesus Christ, our satisfaction in Jesus Christ will be just as full a million trillion years from now as it will be the day we look him in the face. It will never fade. It will never grow old. We will never be bored of it. We will never get tired of it because it will shine just as brightly on day one as it will on day two million. It is an unfading inheritance. And all this glorious news about inheritance that 1 Peter 1 paints for us, and 1 Peter says it is kept in heaven for you. He's keeping it for you. And not only that, it says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. He's keeping this glorious inheritance safely in heaven for you. And he's keeping you safely so that one day you can have it. This is the glorious eternal inheritance that Jesus wants to be sure we receive. He is the mediator of a new covenant. That's how he guarantees that we will receive this promised eternal inheritance that's waiting for us. Remember our fighter verse from last week, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18? For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Beyond all comparison. It means that it's not even worth comparing, right? Think about all the riches on planet earth. And if you look at the glorious inheritance and you look at the riches, you say, I'm not even going to do the math. It's clear this is what I want, right? It's beyond comparison. 
right? We just had the, the whole Powerball thing, right? It got to $2 billion. $2 billion. That's a lot of money, right? $2 billion, right? Everybody's talking about it, right? They're talking about the big price. They're strategizing on how to buy tickets. Radio stations are talking about it. In fact, I was in a restaurant with a friend of mine earlier this week, and the, the owner of the franchise was sitting in the back of the restaurant and was talking to us, and all he could talk about was how frustrated he was that he couldn't buy a Powerball ticket because his wife worked for the state department that's in charge of the lottery or something, right? He's like, I can't get one. I want to buy one. Like everybody wants the Powerball. It's talking about the Powerball. We want the $2 billion. Look, that $2 billion in eternity will be just as worthless as the monopoly money sitting in the box in your game board at home. It's not even worth comparing And look, let's just, be, let's just be blunt this morning. Man, there's a lot of people excited about that $2 billion, and they'll talk to everybody about it. How am I going to get it? What am I going to do to get it? How often does our hope and desire for this glory inheritance that awaits us drive us to speak of Christ in that way? I want it. I can't wait to get it. I want to be sure I'm pursuing Christ. That internal inheritance is going to be glorious. Are we telling other people about it? Are we letting them know how they can get it? Right? I have shame poured on my head, and I'm sure you do as well this morning, that people get more excited about a $2 billion Powerball lottery than we do about the eternal inheritance that Christ has guaranteed for us. It's shameful. And I bear it on my own head this morning. But here's the glorious good news. All you can do is buy a chance for the $2 billion lottery. Through faith in Christ, you have a guarantee. It is guaranteed to you. It is not a chance. You're not taking a chance. It's not random. There's no drawing. If you belong to Christ, it belongs to you. And he will keep you for all eternity. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that you who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And that's what I meant when I said at the beginning that it should blow our minds that Christ came not to be served but to serve you so that you could get all of this. And that brings us to the next two ways that Christ guarantees our eternal inheritance because in order for him to be our mediator, in order for him to, to guarantee that we will receive this promised inheritance, a death had to occur. And so the second way that Jesus guarantees our inheritance is that he died to redeem us. He died to redeem us so this second half of verse 15 and into verse 16 reminds us that there are two significant obstacles to our receiving this eternal inheritance. And that first obstacle is that we don't deserve it, <laughs> right? And not only do you not deserve it, you deserve the exact opposite of it. What you deserve and what 
I deserve is to be eternally condemned away from the loving presence of God, suffering eternal wrath and condemnation in hell because of our wickedness and rebellion against him. Not only do we deserve it, but divine justice demands it. Right? It's what the Bible says to us. For the wages of sin are death. Wages, what we deserve. Any promises that God has given us because we chose sin. And so the second half of verse 15 says, A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Yet, yet Christ came willingly anyway. By giving his life as a ransom so that those who are called might receive the promised eternal inheritance. As Ephesians 2 reminds us, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up uh, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that... Hear this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But we didn't deserve it. We were dead in our trespasses. By God's grace on the cross, Christ redeemed us from the death penalty of the law by placing himself under the death sentence that we deserved. Romans 3, 23 to 26. Some of the kids have been memorizing this in Awana, so this, for those who are in here, will sound familiar to them. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, justice demands that we are condemned to hell, but God met that demand of justice by sending Jesus to die on the cross so that God could remain just. Sin is punished. And yet he could justify us and declare us to be righteous through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's what the second half of verse 15 is talking about when it says a death has occurred that redeems them, those who are called, us, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Therefore, the, the death of Christ breaks through this first barrier that keeps us from this promised eternal inheritance. We could not get it if we remained under God's wrath and condemnation. But because the death of Christ has occurred, we are free to receive the eternal inheritance. The other obstacle, however, still remains. 
So the obstacle of our, the punishment we deserve for our sins has been removed from the finished work of Christ on the cross. But now, just because we're free from punishment does not mean that we should automatically receive an unthinkable inheritance. Right? Think about that. If you are... Uh, 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 if you're a parent and, and your child misbehaves, you may choose to show them mercy, right? And not give them what that deserves. That doesn't mean you say, get in the car and let's go grab some ice cream, right? Those are two different categories. Not giving someone what they deserve and then pouring out glorious riches and rewards upon them are two separate realities. So Jesus died for us. He, he, a death has taken place that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. But now why is it that we receive the guarantee of, a, of an eternal inheritance? And that brings us to the final way that Christ has guaranteed this eternal inheritance. And that is number three. Christ died to enrich us. Now I know... That's a dangerous phrase taken out of context. Because we live in a culture, in a world, unfortunately, that affirms what I would call the evil and wicked and disastrous prosperity gospel, health and wealth theology that can take a phrase like that, that Christ died to enrich us and make it mean something that I don't mean and nor the Bible means. So just let me be really clear. I do not mean when I say that Christ died to enrich us, that he died so that you and I could be materially wealthy here on planet earth in this life and that we would never get sick and that we would never suffer. And that if you're not wealthy and if you're not healthy, then you must not be living for Christ. That is a satanic theology. And that is not what I'm talking about this morning. But I don't want to run so far, be so afraid of that, that I don't proclaim what the Bible proclaims this morning. And what it has proclaimed is that, yes, Christ died to enrich us, to grant us this glorious, unthinkable, eternal inheritance that we talked about earlier. But that eternal inheritance could never be ours as long as Christ lived. And this is one of those aspects of the gospel that we don't think about often until we encounter a passage like this. So look there with me at verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. So, so here, the author of Hebrews is simply telling us, he, he's saying this is how wills work, like, right? This is something we're all familiar with. If you write a will, you are declaring who will receive your possessions when you die, right? That's what part of a will is. You write a will, you define those things in your will, then when you die, that will goes into effect and those you specify receive those possessions, I mean, I'm sure you all have read about all the many family fights that have ensued. You've probably known people that have been in the midst of family fights that ensue when, when someone dies and they don't like what's left in the will and they, they fight about it. Or, or you've read about all the crazy things people have left in their wills. 
So a famous designer, Karl Lagerfeld, he claims before he died, he claims that in his will, he left a sizable fortune for his cat so that his cat would be cared for, right? He, when he was alive, paid for two full-time people to serve his cat, to be sure his cat was cared for, eating out of delicate bowls four times a day with prepared delicacies. And he wanted to be sure that that luxurious lifestyle would continue for his cat. Or the New York ho hotelier who left $12 million for her pet dog. Right? And then there's stories where people fight over their inheritance. And that, so when one of the wealthiest men in history died, the, the Vanderbilt patriarch, right, the heirs fought over the details of the will because he left about 90% of his wealth to one of his sons. And so the daughter contested it because she wanted a bigger share. But in the end, even though they tried to prove that he was not of sound mind and all this stuff, ultimately the will stood. Because even in our legal terms, even if it's something crazy like $12 million for a pet dog, unless you can prove that the person was literally not of sound mind, the court is going to uphold what the will says. They're going to carry it out. The people who are stated in the will are going to get what the will says. But those wills do not go into effect until the person who made it dies. So the cat had no claim to the millions until good old Carl died. Well, listen. I know those wills sound ridiculous, right? A cat getting a fortune, a dog getting $12 million. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. But if there was ever a will that seemed ridiculous, absurd, and potentially made by someone of unsound mind, it would be the will that's been left for you and me. Right? It would be unthinkable. It would, it would have to be of unsound mind, it seems, for someone to leave an eternal inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading for all eternity for those who were his enemies and hated him. That's crazy. But not only that, Someone who, who left that for his enemies and then said, I'm going to die to make them my friends and my children so that they can get it. I'm going to die in their place so that they can be my adopted children so that my enemies will now be my co-heirs and receive an eternal inheritance. That's far more absurd than a dog getting $12 million. It's far more absurd. And we take it for granted. And I don't want us to take it for granted anymore, right? What Christ has done for us through his death on the cross. But because we belong to him, and because it has been promised to those who are called, and because Christ laid down his life and died so that we might be able to receive it, because he is our mediator, because he is working on our behalf, then he is ensuring that we will one day receive this promised eternal 
inheritance. And that's where the story gets really strange, right? Because, yeah, Christ died, but he didn't stay dead. (laughs) Right? He victoriously rose from the grave. And so he has every right to his inheritance also. And so it is through Christ, as we are joined to him, that we are co-heirs with him. And by God's grace, we receive what he receives. And we are heirs, not of the long-deceased king, but co-heirs of the living son of God. And he left the will, and he died so that we could have it, and then he was resurrected so that he could be sure we received it. That's what he has done for us through the gospel. Now, here we are, and I told you this is what you would be thinking. We haven't even touched verses 18 through 22. All right, so I'm just want, because what I want to do is just briefly summarize how it connects to 15 through 17, and then we'll really dive into more of 18 through 22 as we move into 23 to the end of the chapter next week. But this is what 18 through 22 says. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, right? There was a lot of bloodshedding that had to happen, right? Jesus' death had to happen to redeem us from our sin. Jesus' death had to happen so that we could receive the eternal inheritance. Blood had to be shed. So, so therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by, declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So here's the connection between what we've been talking about in 15 through 17 and 18 through 22. It It shows us, it reveals to us that from day one, God was preparing us for the redeeming death of Christ in our place. That the blood that was spilled in the tabernacle day after day, week after week, was meant to teach us that one day the blood of Christ would have to be spilled. That one day he would have to die in our place. It prepared us for this day that has arrived, that Jesus Christ died in our place and took our sin on himself that we might receive the eternal inheritance. And look, we're going to have a lot more to say about the role of blood and the purifying of our conscience and the forgiveness of sins in next week. But it's just to say that it prepared us for this reality of the gospel. The shadow of the tabernacle prepared us for the reality of the cross. That's why there was blood all over the sacrificial system. Therefore, brothers and sisters... As we reflect on what Christ has done for us, that he came not to be served, but to serve us, to work for us, to guarantee for us this eternal inheritance, we ought to grow in our contentment and by God's grace, free our lives from grumbling and complaining. Right, it's it's like a child whose parents are taking them to Disney World. And they got to be in the car for a couple of hours. 
And they ask their parents, did you remember the candy? And they say, no, we're sorry. We left it at home. And they gripe and complain about not having candy the entire way to Disney World. And what do we do as parents? We rebuke them because their hearts are communicating a lack of gratitude and realization of what we are, what we're providing for them at Disney World. It's why the Bible says that we are to do all things without grumbling and complaining because we're the children in the car. And as 2 Corinthians reminded us last week, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Look, God has orchestrated these things. The women have been in James chapter 1. We were memorizing 2 Corinthians 4 last week. James chapter 1, what does it say, ladies? Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. That all of the trials that come our way. That these light momentary afflictions. They are intended by God to get us ready for the eternal inheritance. So let's fix our eyes on Christ. On things above where Christ is and let our lives be filled with joy and not worry and anxiety and grumbling and complaining. And may we be as excited about the eternal inheritance as the world is excited about a $2 billion Powerball that they have about a point zero to the thousandth degree one chance of winning, right? It's guaranteed, friends. Let's rejoice in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ in our place. Father, I pray that you would help us in two directions this morning. I pray that you would help us see and fully embrace just how much we don't deserve your grace. I pray that you would awaken us more and more to the depravity of our hearts, to the ugliness of our sins and our desires and our, fleshly, our fleshliness. And as you drive us into the depths of our sin and help us to see the wretched men and women that we are, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, while you do that, I pray that you would lift our eyes to the overwhelming grace and mercy that has been poured out on us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Father, as you do that, I pray that you would help us to embrace and reflect on and think on and glory in all that Christ has accomplished for us and how he came not to be served, but to serve us that we might have an eternal inheritance. And so I pray that we would return unto him what he deserves, which is that we would live for the glory of his name. And so Father, right now, even as we stand to sing, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and that we would sing out as a redeemed people together this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.